0: Katie.
1: and i'm vinnie and this is learn real good
0: wow i'm excited
1: yeah Are you excited. i'm always excited it's to a do sunday
0: these. recording this is rare it's
1: true we normally record on a thursday yes, insiders revealing.
0: yes <laughs> revealing <laughs> the hidden truths yeah
1: people need to know what day of the week <laughs> yes. we record on Normally, it is a sunday this is the exception
0: and right after dinner we don't normally do this right after dinner so we are like happy tummies we're living
1: on the edge here <laughs> just completely turning the world upside down
0: but it's also much earlier in the evening i feel like i have a lot of energy
1: yeah you're normally half asleep through the other <laughs> recordings is that it no
0: of course not but i, I, I usually have to like you know slap my cheeks uh, uh. <laughs> Wake up. Look alive, Fagnuco. That's what I have to do.
1: And you pinch them to make them rosy? And, yes, that's yeah, correct. Right. Like
0: the olden days. Yeah. Because mm-hmm.
1: you live in a, like, a Victorian-era novel. Correct. All right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: don't you know that? How's your petticoat? Uh, fantastic. Mm. Are those the funny little pants? Petticoats? I don't know. It's I believe... A, I are, think it's like are those bloomers? Bloomers? I think are those, those are bloomers.
1: Same? I just said a word. <laughs> I
0: think... Is the petticoat, like, the whole, like, underdress? I think that's what a petticoat oh, is. Like, the white whitish underdress I mean,
1: Petticoat, I assume, comes from the term putsy coat," so it's like some something small, like undergarments, like small clothes. Yeah, is an old term for underwear.
0: I can picture like a little house in the prairie. I bet there's some petticoats going on there.
1: There's an old TV show, isn't there, Petticoat <laughs> Junction? I don't know why there's a junction named after it, though.
0: <laughs> it was like a- yeah, it's like
1: I- Boxers Highway. Mm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was about attaching petticoats. the oh, whole show—that makes like, sense. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's a
1: sh- That's a TV show. That's a show. There.
0: Bring that back. Bring
1: it back. It's ready for a reboot.
0: I want a gritty Riverdale petticoat junction oh junctions. yeah with
1: like teens and hot tubs <laughs> and their petticoats yes perfect and,
0: and fizzle fiddle faddle or whatever it was called <laughs> jingle jangle jingle, fiddle jingle. faddle
1: yeah god riverdale is insane hey
0: this is not a riverdale <laughs> review show anymore
1: yeah we've discontinued we that record podcast. that on
0: tuesdays this is learn, real, learn good. real good
1: we want to learn stuff real good
0: yeah so we are scientists Comedian folk, and we uh, talk about science in a fun way yeah. or try to. And we have a science
1: guest. Yes. I'm, and I'm excited to get excited. to that too.
0: Yes. We have a, a guest from a topic that's very undercovered. Yeah. Undercovered? And
1: we, we know it's undercover. It's <laughs> like a petticoat.
0: <laughs> yes. It's, it's the petticoat of oh, sciences. STEM fields. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because it's underrepresented yeah on our show.
1: And not um, everyone knows what it is.
0: Well, no one knows because we haven't
1: said it. Well, I like teasing.
0: Yes we'll look forward to that but yeah. we're not there yet no we, we have science
1: facts to share with facts fun facts yes which fun we facts. don't we don't How know at we the don't other... have a song for this part
0: well we need someone if you out there if you're a le- learner who loves this show
1: and it's <laughs> let's write a jingle Oh, like fun facts it's time for facts that are lots of fun fun facts well i
0: guess we'd have it let's <laughs> that it that's recorded i'll put it to music and wow, didn't uh, it was that we easy. have a theme. It's that, that easy. Well, our, our listeners might not know that we actually recorded a little ditty for our promo video, oh, Vinny. True, we had to yeah. practice the harmonies. Is oh, there man. any way we can do this? You want right to try it? Yes. We hope you will
1: learn, learn real good. good. I don't quiet. think that was it, but we're fired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, fact time. Who's first? I'll go first. Oh, okay, go first.
1: So, what do you think about when you think about <laughs> bees?
0: Ooh, I think honey. Mm-hmm. I think yellow and black stripes. Uh-huh. I think social yes. interaction. Yes. I think victims of murder hornets.
1: Ooh, yeah. Murder <laughs> hornets bad. Well, yeah. this fun fact is brought to you by flesh-eating bees. No. Yes. Oh. But they're carrion bees. So yes. this is a new type of bee that's been It's
0: new? Hot on the market.
1: <laughs> uh, it's recently being like explored and researched. Okay. So, it seems to be, uh, uh, it has been around for a while, but not mm. a lot is known about it. Right. So they're basically uh, called vulture bees because mm. they are they eat carrion. They're, oh, no. Uh, and so, yeah, these are bees that exclusively feed off of decomposing. Oh, no. Uh, animals, snakes, frogs, whatever's around. They don't, they've adapted. They've given up the plant life <laughs> and have gone full meativore. Right. And so they're like, well, what happened? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. How did they go from plant... And pollen to meat, and so basically they didn't have to change too much. So on their legs, they still have their little pouches for carrying pollen, mm-hmm. except for now it carries pre-chewed meat to bring back oh, to the disgusting. to the hive. Uh, and one of the more uh, what made it into the news is that they did some research into their bio, their gut biomes. Ooh! And what's interesting is that it's very, it's completely different from mm. a bee gut biome. And very similar to a hyena or vulture oh, gut biome, wow. so it's like high acid. It can it it will like dissolve any kind of like toxins or spoiling from the carrion. Hmm. So it protects the bee from being poisoned from eating all this dead meat. Uh, and it's like it it's basically made to be a meat eating gut biome.
0: Meat eating bees. Now, do they make disgusting meat honey?
1: <laughs> oh no <laughs> i hope not real oh, real, real mommy. <laughs> yikes it's a little salt i wonder maybe. maybe i guess they have to store some kind of food yeah in the hive is yeah there meat, meat, honey? meat honey from bee, I meat don't bees i do this
0: is one of those questions where i'm not gonna Google yeah i don't it.
1: want the answer to oh, the vulture really bees but yeah so there's these bees out there and they're like the research was done in costa rica so it's a very like central american mm. thing um and yeah, fascinating. Who knew there were bees out there? Meat-eating bees. Yeah. Mm. Gross. Kind of gross.
0: Yeah. I like to think of them as like vegetarian. They seem sweet. Vegetarian.
1: Or like the picture. you receive of <laughs> those pictures of bumblebees who fall asleep in flowers because they like flew <laughs> around too much and they have their butts sticking out of the flower covered in pollen. S-
0: these guys do that too. You're 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 demonizing predators yeah. and uh, valorizing these, herbivores. These cute
1: vulture bees with their butts—they fall asleep in a corpse they're with their butts they're sticking they're out, <laughs> covered in meat, honey. Is that what your romance That's Sweet. Mm, all right.
0: I want to know if there's meat, honey. Right. I want to know, but I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to see that those pictures.
1: Well, what's your science fact? Okay. Hopefully, it's less grisly.
0: Um, is it? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, we're looking at uh, uh, macrofauna. Ooh, today macro whales. macro fauna oh, I, okay. what, what do you think of whales in terms of
1: i think they're great <laughs> i, I did, love them
0: i did say that weirdly
1: yeah what do i think of them? what i wanted you know i've got a few notes
0: <laughs> what do whales eat Vinny?
1: krill yeah they love krill right yeah baleen krill? krill tiny shrimp
0: they're t- tiny crustacean-y things crustacean-y things yeah, yeah sure like, like itty-bitty
1: yeah, very tiny. Very small. Very, very small. So
0: whales eat krill, and as you can imagine, probably a lot, right? Which I do we'll imagine. Get in, we'll get into numbers now. What then? We're get
1: into the numbers.
0: Yeah. What What then? Do you think would be the impact of an environment where there were no whales? What do you think the impact on krill? would Krill be? would
1: go bananas. You they, would
0: think so. They just
1: blast out krill like <laughs> like in just a bananas amount of krill.
0: Okay, you said they will blast uh, out krill. They Who's, will. Who is the
1: previous generation of krill? <laughs> They'd just be like, no predators, time to make babies.
0: Yeah, the krill cannon's going nuts. like yeah. a t-shirt cannon and a <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's more krill. More krill. Well, here's the surprising okay. truth. It is not the case. No. When whales go bye-bye. I don't know why I said that. Whales go bye-bye. Well, when whales go bye-bye, krill go down.
1: Oh.
0: Ah. Okay. And there is a direct link. Really? What, do think, what do you think it might be?
1: uh they have to like the whales give permission there's like a form to fill yeah,
0: out yeah yeah the whales are filling out forms. yeah
1: no 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 the krill are filling out forms <laughs> come on are whales gonna fill out a form
0: seriously Vinny? how could whales hmm. be positively influencing krill populations
1: are they like stirring up food sources somehow? that's interesting I like mean, their motion maybe. that's not like what their this presence? is about Yeah, I would assume it has to do with like their presence, increasing the amount of food available.
0: So it is
1: poop. Whale poop? Whale poop. Whale poop. So when
0: there's no whales, there's no whale poop. And the whale poop. (laughs)
1: We're really popping our peas on the poop.
0: Whale poop.
1: It's hard not to. (laughs) It's
0: hard to not pop peas. Has a very, it's very necessary. So whales eat krill and krill are really high in iron, which is sometimes a limiting Uh, nutrient in ocean Mm. for for phytoplankton which are the primary main primary producers the primary primary producers of the ocean poop
1: poop primary producers
0: (laughs) no the phytoplankton and so phytoplankton need iron like tiny tiny particles of iron and the krill sort of pick that up and then hold it in their tissues and the whales by pooping out yes krill reintroduce it so without the whales
1: The iron doesn't get reintroduced.
0: Correct. And you need those phytoplankton blooms because that's what the krill survive on. So, just to give you some numbers, I need the numbers. A blue whale can put away 16 metric tons of krill in a single day. A day? Which is the equivalent of 10 to 20 million calories or 30,000 Big Macs. (laughs) Why is it in Big Macs? Because whales are like going. How am I not going to share that if I have that in front of me?
1: Wow, that's a lot of. One, that's a lot of krill. Yes. Two, it's a lot of calories.
0: Well, so that's not what they consume every day. Isn't that so what they you said go, per day? No. That's they could consume that many krill in a day. Like okay, in a school school of krill. Right. Well no, they would eat as much as they can, but they'd go weeks, months with no food. I see. So they suck it all up when they can. Sure. Anyway, so yeah, so so actually, you need you need, you whales, need whales for krill. Wow, with no no whales, it, it actually hurts their prey. No
1: whales, no krill. No yeah. krill, no whales. It's a, it's a cycle. Yeah. It's a circle of life. But
0: it's interesting because you know these predator-prey dynamics are more complicated than they than they might seem.
1: This one seems pretty simple.
0: <laughs> okay, I know, but it's not like for the krill, the whales are necessarily bad. Right. Right. But right. that that is how we sort of. We deal with interactions in sure. communities. We usually summarize them: is is it positive or negative, right?
1: But it's mutual.
0: Yeah, they they both need each other. They need each other.
1: Oh, that's Man, like so what a they, lesson! If
0: only uh, the rest of us could realize
1: that. If only we could be more like the whale and the krill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the title of my new album. The
0: David and Goliath of the ocean world.
1: Wait, that's one way.
0: Mm? <laughs> I was just thinking, one's big and one's small. All right. <laughs> I don't really know. The it's not story. really mutual. There they
1: fought, didn't they? Yeah, David Was kills Goliath. Is there a slingshot the involved? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Maybe we'll talk about this. After. <laughs> All
0: right, we'll talk about David Goliath. <laughs> That's today. our other
1: podcast, Biblical Met- Metaphors.
0: We have a real Goliath with us today Good in one. terms nice. of <laughs> influence in the geology world. Is it time to get to our guest? Yes, please. Okay. Well, I am honored to introduce our guest today, Miko Mida Das they are a phd candidate in the earth and planetary sciences department at mcgill university her research involves looking at rocks for signatures of ancient earthquakes in order to understand how earthquakes form and move from deep in the crust to the surface she wants to take her research further and see its application in science-based policy making megomita loves talking about food and will be ready to drop random recommendations for places to eat she also likes baking painting petting all the dogs she meets and recently started crocheting. Please join me in welcoming Megomi Data Das. Hello. Welcome. For me. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I love <laughs> the I
2: loved I loved all the facts that we just discussed.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We try. Hopefully some of them were factual. Wait, you were making yourself? know. <laughs> Um yeah, so I'm I'm very yes. excited about this.
1: Yeah, we we I think this is our first geologist.
0: Uh well, we had someone who dealt with glaciers. Glaciers, and had that's true. A geological
1: background. Yes. So
0: okay, geologist. this is our
1: second geologist.
0: But we're, we're... that there,
2: there, there a there's a whole distinction between rock people and ice people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The... I
1: could see that. I could see that.
0: Is it like a big rift?
1: Oh, come on. That you have geology I mean, puns. I...
2: I don't think it's a big rift but it's like uh every i think in september there is a twitter contest called mineral cup where you pit each mineral against each other and ice keeps winning and everyone is like (laughs) ice is not a mineral that is like a huge
1: i love it i love mineral cup i i love (laughs) that there's this feud yeah well ice is not a mineral
0: yeah
2: yeah but then it it kind of is but then that makes water lava like the equivalent of lava
0: it's it's like a whole none of this makes
1: sense yeah i'm frustrated for you i mean after a certain number of wins they should retire ice (laughs) and see like who's yeah right give someone (laughs) else a chance
2: yeah it's all uh topsy-turvy at that cup (laughs) yeah
1: my money's on zinc.
0: All right. Well, I being from Sudbury, I have to go for nickel. Sorry.
2: <laughs> That's actually a separate cup. That's an element cup.
1: Oh. oh well, well. Yeah. Different leagues. You don't want to get them mixed up. I get it.
2: We are very, very pedantic about our yeah, yeah. minerals and our rocks and right. everything.
0: Wow. Okay. This is this is already thrilling. Yeah. Um. I don't know anything about this world. Um, yeah. mikomida Could you? Could you? Because we're 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 real dum dums with this. Could you start us off with just some some basic plate tectonic stuff yes uh i can try so
2: earthquakes happen uh i'm sure you have heard news Mm -hmm. about earthquakes happening some part at some part of the world and they happen so i like to think of earthquakes that they come in different sizes they come in different speeds they come from different depths and like we all heard Mm about like earthquakes of japan um sometimes you hear all the california earthquakes going off things like that and usually it have earthquakes happen in areas where either uh, plates are moving past each other or they are bumping into each other or they're going away from each other so wherever there is like a boundary of sorts that's where you get an earthquake happening so like the japan is like what we call a subduction zone earthquake because there one plate is going underneath the other mm-hmm. california like the san andreas the big big mm-hmm. san andreas is a we call it a strike slip uh earthquake because where the mm-hmm. plates are not necessarily going down like against each other but they're moving mm-hmm. past each other so they're sliding back oh. and forth mm-hmm then there are some earthquakes that happen in like East Africa, like at the East African rift zone. Those are earthquakes when the plates are moving away from each other. So that's yeah. Boundaries are bad for earthquakes. Like boundaries are where earthquakes happen.
1: Good for people, bad for earthquakes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there a type of plate thing like under, away, side to sidey? Is there one that's sort of associated with bigger earthquakes? Like a bigger magnitude? Uh,
2: yeah. So that's the one that happens in Japan and mm. like even New Zealand. It's the subduction zone okay. earthquakes, Uh where the plate is going again, like one is diving underneath mm. the other. And that actually involves like a lot of energy release. And those are the ones that usually cause like magnitude eight, nine level Whoa. earthquakes. Wow. Crazy. Yeah.
1: yeah. And yeah, maybe you can tell us about your field of research.
2: Yeah, definitely. So actually some, sub- Subduction earthquakes is a good segue into what I study. So I study subduction earthquakes, but even at that zone, like at the subduction, there are different kinds of earthquakes that happen. I study a relatively recently discovered earthquake called slow earthquakes. Hmm. Um, they are well, they're slow, uh, <laughs> and right. that's because like when you think of a like a high magnitude earthquake, uh, you usually hear things like, oh, it lasted for some minutes to seconds like maybe four or five minutes is a general duration for a big earthquake but and it releases a lot of energy so like in Hmm. slow earthquakes you get the same amount of energy released but instead of the release happening over like seconds to minutes it actually lasts sometimes days or months to years like it's gradually released and like you can't feel them like you can't as like there's no Mm. shaking involved Mm. so you won't we won't be able to detect it so it needs to be instrumentally detected like very sensitive sensors needs to be put in and they will detect the signals coming off and the reason this earthquake is important for us is because when researchers were trying to figure out where this earthquake is coming from they realized that it happens in areas that is close to the zone which produces this large earthquakes so Hmm. people people think that maybe the slow earthquakes is either stopping the large earthquake or maybe triggering the large earthquakes like Hmm. we don't know the relation yet either it happens before the large earthquake or after the earthquake like the relation is not that straightforward so people want to know why it's happening or how it's happening um, and that's where my research comes in. So you can study earthquakes using different techniques. What I use is called, I'm looking at microstructures in ancient rocks. Hmm. So it's just another way of saying that whenever an earthquake happens, because it's a lot of energy that has been released, the rocks either get deformed in some way, like mm. either they get broken apart, blasted out, uh, folded, smooshed together. Hmm. Turns in, Those are the technical into- terms. Yeah, I I I I I definitely use smoosh a lot. <laughs> yeah, <if> I, just...
1: <laughs> I think they should. I think that needs to be a technical term. Yeah,
2: so <laughs> it's it's very like smooshy and squishy and all yeah, of that. Yeah. So they leave leave behind all of these signatures. So <laughs> when these rocks come to the surface through like erosion or whatever, we see these signatures preserved in these rocks, and that kind of tells us how the earthquake happened, what it looked like, how did it form, how did it move in the rock. So I kind of go back in the rock record so I look back at ancient rocks that have been brought to the surface and I try to figure out I look at the these features these signatures and try to figure out what was causing them and what they can tell us about the slow earthquake signal that wow. we're getting right now
0: that's wild that looking at a rock yeah. you can see like if you know what you're looking for obviously we couldn't yeah but like <laughs> you'd be like oh an earthquake was here <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> Actually, like, there is, like, one very common signal that people usually, like, whoever studies earthquake look for. It's called Um, It's, the name is kind of like a misnomer of sorts. But essentially, what it tells you is that whenever, like, two blocks of rocks mm. are moving against each other mm-hmm. during an earthquake, it generates a lot of heat. Mm. Right? It's like two... Ju- chunky rock moving past against each other and that heat kind of melts a portion of both those rocks and after the earthquake passes by that melt kind of freezes or like solidifies so if you track the melt horizons you know that there was an earthquake happening
0: that is nuts that's fascinating
1: and so these slow (laughs) earthquakes can take place you said over days and weeks and longer
0: yeah there are some
2: that happens like Yours, but the your one is kind of like rare, and because it's a recently discovered phenomena, and by recent I mean like twenty years, which is kind of
1: on a tectonic scale.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So it's like we—they're still detecting these new or these new phenomena at every location on the earth. The one that's close to us, the one that happens at Cascadia, like off British Columbia, all the way down to Oregon, I think, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. This phenomena repeats itself every 13 to 16 months so like every 13 to 16 months you see the signal coming back up again and everyone is like okay
0: slow earthquake season is back let's go wow yeah
1: what a strange cycle wild so
0: so how do slow earthquakes sort of influence the rock or or the plates yeah are they
1: being melted slowly when they squish against each other
2: that's actually a really good question that kind of like what my research is centered around is because like if you're talking about fast earthquakes that is like capable of melting rocks you can see the melted rocks Mm -hmm. if it is so slow that you're not going to see anything you will see a regular rock right slow earthquake is kind of in between so in nature it's like hard to study this like nature functions in the in between but it's like hard to understand the in between processes we mm. always like think of n member processes uh where slow earthquake is like bang in the center you have to figure it out mm. so the idea behind it like generally what people are assuming is that because they have the same characteristics as a regular earthquake maybe it is deforming like a regular Mm. earthquake it's just that instead of going Mm. at a speed of seconds it is getting arrested in some way like something is stopping it like a roadblock so our job is to figure out what that roadblock is and how
0: it's interacting with the earthquake
1: Hmm. that's fascinating
0: so mikomita if i had two rocks okay would you do i i don't so you don't have to worry about <laughs> this actually happening but if i had two rocks and one had been affected by a slow earthquakes over years and the other one just experienced like an 8.2 intense fast earthquake would they look different to you theoretically yes Interesting. uh if you
2: if it's a if it's a fresh sample i i assume because again like <laughs> even with fast earthquakes they once they come to the surface mm. they like get affected by like other processes Mm -hmm. so it's like hard to hard to like unravel each of those episodes out and go back to what it what caused it but I'm guessing like a magnitude 8.2, like it won't be a rock, it would be a powder. I
1: right, yeah, like... <laughs> <laughs> you just get pebbles. I went too big, yeah, I you went, went too big. big. You went too big. <laughs> and so are these rocks identifiable like visually or is it chemistry, like some mm. chemical signatures?
2: It's actually a bit of both. So like we do go for visual cues because when you're out on field, you need like visual cues to see which one to sample. But at the end, you're, you're still going to bring it in. You're going to see it in lab. Like, we make these things called thin sections. So essentially, we slice the rock really, really thin, like 0.03 millimeter wow. thick, make a slide out of it. We put it under the microscope, and we see how those individual crystals were deforming. Mm-hmm. Uh, how the, like, if there's something like iron that uh, Katie mentioned in the, in the yes. back, is like Iron and there are iron moves around in like earth systems. Like you get iron deposits in the ocean, like subduction zone because it's like deep in the ocean. Sometimes there are like iron rich fluids coming in. So you want to see how that iron is moving around and how it's forming certain minerals and like not forming the other kind. So geology is a subject where you use all the sciences to like Mm -hmm. figure out what's going on. So my project realized mostly with like physics input like the mechanics of stuff as well as like the chemical right nature of it as well
1: so i guess my immediately my question is how do you cut rocks that thin <laughs> how like what's the process I'm, like i'm fascinated just by the the tool that must be involved
2: it's actually pretty cool like it it's one of those like I don't use power tools at home, but I get to use it for my work. Sure. It's like this industrial diamond impregnated rock saw, we call it. So it's like a, well, a saw, circular saw. Oh. Uh, and it has like water jets, a water jet shooting water into it because or else it will flame up. And you hold the piece of rock that you collected from field. You like hold it like you need a really good grip. And it just like cuts like butter because it's like, Wow. Rotating very fast. Wow. And once you make so you get chips like that, like you get a decent amount of chip size. Um we send it because I have to like study so many rocks, we send it to like an <laughs> external agency True. who grinds it down. But the idea is that then you keep uh like it's like how you do sandpaper stuff, mm-hmm. like how you okay. sandpaper it down. Mm-hmm. But instead of sandpaper, we usually use this thing called carborandum powder it's like tiny gritty material wow. at different sizes okay. and you keep um polishing, polishing it over wow. yeah yeah
1: that's fascinating yeah no kidding
0: now let's be honest make you've put some stuff in this saw to see will it cut what's the <laughs> coolest thing you've snuck in this saw let's be honest on the dl what did you slip in this rock saw
2: i think i think this well it wasn't on pur- purpose because like i like when I collected on field, it looked like a rock that was cut and I was like, All right, cool, like this holding together, I can get a grip on it, I can cut it. And uh someone had told me like not to cut that rock because they felt like something was off about it oh, and no, I, I, no. I was like, Okay. Uh so I was like, Fine, if it's off I will figure it out once I cut it open. Sure. So so That's a good I, scientist. Was, yeah, like I need to just cut it open. Yeah. So like I Kind of like went for it and immediately, like, even when it touched the blade, it immediately disintegrated. Like, there were like shards <laughs> flying out. Um, and what happened that I didn't realize was that the rock was this sediment rich rock and it wasn't, it looked compact. Like, it looked like uh... it was a hefty piece of rock, but it wasn't attached together oh, properly. No. I, it was like sparks i was like wow. no. I, got, I, I was like
1: all right wow a sneaky Bad rock <laughs>
2: yeah
1: a, a trap rock
0: yeah <laughs> a phony rock
1: yeah, Beware those faux rocks yeah, those exploding yeah,
2: rocks. yeah. it wasn't it was, it was <laughs> fun and then the other thing like because it's like such a high-speed blade mm-hmm. uh we all always wear ppe's and sure. like i wear glasses on top of glasses <laughs> like yeah. i have a safety glass on top of my regular glass um and yeah like i i got so scared i, I ran out of the rocks. so i was like oh my god this is like shooting rocks <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, who, who knew it was so dangerous cutting rocks i feel like <laughs> yeah it's dangerous. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, sounds dangerous it sounds dangerous
0: okay so so say mikomita you're 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 arriving at a site and you've been you've been told and earth earthquakes have happened here like how do you go about like <laughs> narrowing down oh
1: are these on land or underwater or like i guess both
2: so regarding uh Vinny's question as to whether these are rocks underwater or like rocks on the surface the question is they were under the water at I one point that makes sense. Hmm. and through like plate tectonic motion and whatever like erosion and all they got shoved up to the surface Mm. so now they're on surface so now that means we can walk up to them and study them uh regarding figuring out how to narrow down the site and like where to go because theoretically i can go anywhere to study a bunch of rocks the idea is that when we when we study them in like the real time, like whatever is happening right now in the present day, uh, we get information like the depth at which it is occurring or like the mm. environment in which it is occurring, like pressure temperature expected at that depth. Our idea is that there are some minerals that stabilizes in certain pressure temperature conditions. So the idea is to hunt for those minerals mm. and match it up to the environment that's happening right now. So my site is... Actually, in the Franciscan Complex of California, hmm. so I have to travel to California. Hopefully,
1: that sounds good.
2: Yeah, that's that's such a that's such a in interesting. In winter, I am mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, such a bad idea. So yeah, like Franciscan Complex in California has the like in the minerals that that the, those rocks have. Hmm. They relate to the same pressure uh, temperature conditions that we are seeing in ca- present day subduction zones. So, we think that is a good, like, that is one of our first site selection criteria. Then, obviously, we we are studying subduction zone <laughs> earthquakes. So, we have to look at a former subduction zone, which Franciscans mm. swear Yeah, so, like, we have to, like, study what's going on right now and then, like, be like, okay, first so go to a subduction zone, look for this mineral, look for this thing, and then we backtrack it.
1: Amazing. <laughs> And can you can you get rocks from an active subduction zone?
2: Um, yeah, but it's like very depth limited. Right. So, like in Japan, um, because the earthquakes happen like at a shallower level, which is why the devastation is so impactful. Mm. They send out these uh, research expedition crews where they drill down to the trench or where the two plates are meeting, and they sample these cores, like cores hmm. of sediments. And once you get the core, you can study like where the fault was cutting through and you can figure it out. Amazing. But the earthquake that I'm studying, it happens like around like 30 to 45 kilometer depth, which is we can't drill that no. deep. So we have to rely on like older rocks that have been brought to the surface. Wow.
0: Whoa, I had no idea that earthquakes were sort of made their mark on rocks. I don't know why I never thought of that.
1: I guess, yeah, they... <laughs> I mean, the whole planet is just one big earthquake record.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so does that mean that Megomida, that we have some idea of like frequency of earthquakes over Earth's history? Like, do we know, are they relatively consistent? Like 20 earthquakes a year or are were there periods in Earth's history where there were lots of earthquakes?
2: I think when Earth was initially forming and all mm-hmm. these plates were like bumping against each other like a... Like bumper cars, I think of them like <laughs> that. Um, I would imagine there would be a lot of earthquakes, but we didn't have hmm. record at that time. Like right. we didn't have instrumentations, um, so there's a lot about earthquakes that we don't know. And figuring out the timing between two earthquakes is what's essentially driving this field, because like that's hmm. a hugely important information. There are some areas uh, where we have extensive records that kind of shows you or tells you how many earthquakes had happened Hmm. in the past and how many are happening right now, so you can be like, okay, once in two, twenty years or whatever. The best example that comes to mind is uh, Japan has had so many earthquakes in its history, and actually the Japanese farmers used to keep like very Hmm. thorough records of when. tsunamis would come or when flooding would happen or when suddenly like the land will get submerged because an earthquake literally collapsed the ground on it. And those are actually really important historical records for us because this was before instrumentation came in. The other cool story that I love, it's this book now written by Brian Atwater. It's called the Orphan Tsunami of the 1700s. Uh, (laughs) And essentially it's, it talks about the Cascadia subduction zone and no one knew that it was a subduction zone except for the uh, First Nations communities living in those areas where yeah. they kind of orally passed the knowledge on to generations that the earth shook and there was water everywhere. Wow. And that kind of pinpointed January 26, 1700 as the last magnitude nine Cascadia earthquake.
1: Wow. wow.
2: Like it, it's one of the most precise records that That's we could amazing. find. Um, and you can get to the day yeah and it's called orphan tsunami because essentially the tsunami reached japan but they didn't experience an earthquake so they were like where is this where is Uh the tsunami coming from so then it was like a massive project where they mapped all the records in japan versus all the records from british columbia all the way to oregon and they were able to like pinpoint exactly the date and the time of that massive earthquake another recent story that I covered was Mesoamerican cultures like Aztec civilizations. (laughs) They used to make these manuscripts where they kind of retold or summarized all the events in a year. And they wrote down all the earthquakes that happened in that year, like movements. And it was funny because when I was covering the story, I was like, Oh, yeah. Like, current literature states that this area hasn't experienced a ma- massive earthquake since 1845. But the ancient record said that it did have an earthquake back in the day. And the day I submitted that article, the earthquake went off. It was the Acapulco-Mexico <laughs> City earthquake. It, it, was very, it was very wild. Wow, you shouldn't oh. have submitted that paper. <laughs> yeah, it was like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I assume all of this is to just help our understanding of how plate tectonics work and and it also to assist in prediction of earthquakes so that we can prepare for them. Yeah?
2: I think the biggest thing biggest message in earthquake science is that we cannot predict earthquakes right now. If sure. someone tells you that they can, I would I would no, totally doubt. Right. Oh yeah, I would totally doubt that thing. But the idea is to understand the process that is causing the earthquake and also as with any natural disaster, whether they're earthquakes or floods or whatever, the idea is to get infrastructure and awareness going for it. Like you want to be prepared in case it happens hmm. because it will happen. And once it happens, we can't like physically stop it. So the idea is to like brace yourself for it. Um, hmm. And that's where we
1: could stop it. <laughs>
2: I mean, that would be wild. Like it would be like literally, like some sci-fi. Like
1: yeah, I'm gonna try.
2: San Andreas movie.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, just punch the earth.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is there any good, good thing about earthquakes? Like, do they create? Min- I don't know anything about this. Is there any good side effect of earthquakes?
2: The way I think about it is that earthquakes kind of tells us that the earth is still alive Hmm. because it tells you that the plate tectonic forces are working. It tells you that the mantle on which the plates Hmm. are floating is still churning and like the core is working and everything is good. Like when it's not a dying planet yet, like not Hmm. atmospherically, but like geologically it's not dead dead yet. The other reason why earthquakes are kind of important is because it actually helps the mobilization of certain elements through the Hmm surface to the earth because it's all part of it's all connected like carbon cycles going through the earth coming back up nutrient cycles all of them are linked to some Mm. sort of earth movement so i would say earthquakes are terrifying like as human civilizations go because they're devastating but like it's also a sign of a very active planet that Mm. you're we are still in a very active rock i would say
1: yeah well just rock on the outside it's still gooey and squishy on the inside yeah
0: yeah
1: to use the technical terms. yes
0: squishy and (laughs) smooshy now you are in montreal you go to mcgill right you're in montreal now we get earthquakes and it has nothing to do with being on a fault line. Do you want to talk about our little Montreal earthquake?
2: Yeah, so uh, Montreal earthquakes are very enigmatic, I would say, because no one exactly knows why Hmm. it happens. The reason you get earthquakes in Montreal is because Montreal lies between two high seismic areas, which just means areas with more number of earthquakes but these are all like tiny earthquakes so one is called the Charlevoix zone which is close to Quebec City Mm -hmm. I think and the other one is the Western Quebec seismic zone so that goes all the way to Ottawa like there are many theories as to why we get earthquakes over here and some of it has to do with like how the the eastern margin of North America formed so there were like lots Mm -hmm. of microcontinents coming and bumping into each other and like Mm -hmm. that kind of created the environment that we are on right now and it's just like maybe that some of those attachment lines kind of got reactivated as fault lines and that kind of causes those minor movements but yeah like there's no one answer as to why we have these things we just know that these areas have those attachment zones hmm. so relatively they would be a good location to have an earthquake
1: wow hmm. and but we don't get big ones we, they're usually a maximum three and a half right
2: yeah like you want like unle- i know i'm gonna earthquake scientist and i'm supposed to feel earthquakes i'm really bad at feeling earthquakes
0: like <laughs> me
1: too I, i'm bad I,
2: at them. I like i wake up in the news uh, wake up in the morning and i read the news and it's like oh there was an earthquake i'm like
1: really like yeah <laughs> yeah they're so because, tiny here
2: yeah like i think my supervisor kind of describes uh magnitude 4 as like a truck moving there and i'm yeah. like that's hard to pick up in
0: montreal where right? there's so many <laughs> because trucks there are a lot moved. of trucks here there yeah. was there was like a not big but a bigger one, like 10 years ago. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, I, th- I think it was about 10 years ago. And, I, and it was yeah, at yeah, like yeah. midnight or something. You would probably know better. Um, but I remember thinking, because it did wake me up. And I was like, oh, no, they're they're mining again. Because I grew up in a mining town where it was pretty common that in the middle of the night, there'd be blasting of rock. And it would feel like a little baby earthquake. So I thought it was that. I was just like in my childhood bedroom. And I'm like, oh, they're just <laughs> blasting. But then it wouldn't stop. And I was like what is happening
1: (laughs) you're like you thought you were in sudbury but you were in montreal i
0: just forgot like i'm like oh it's just blasting because i've never experienced an earthquake and i had to google it and it was an earthquake wow
2: i think the one that you're talking about was like the magnitude 5 that kind of affected Ottawa as well like it was it was a higher one not exactly montreal but like some towns like north or south of it kind of experienced the magnitude 6.2 earthquake which is like a whoa is a good one pretty decent sized earthquake yeah and they were like reports of chimneys breaking down and all of that we have like I don't want to experience a magazine earthquake, <laughs> but yeah like it's not out of the realm of possible that's a, that's
1: a good level that's a good level of it like five yeah. is good like oh yeah earthquake awesome and then once it gets higher you're like oh this is damaging this is not cool anymore
2: yeah like that's it, what the, I would say. The, the line is very fine between like sure. <laughs> Oh, this this is a rad earthquake. Version. Yeah. Oh my
1: God, we are dying. Yeah, the line between rad earthquake and bad earthquake is pretty, rad and bad. The rad. That's my scale of earthquake. Mm, yeah. Rad, bad, and then sad. That's just it's so oh, bad. Yeah. That it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: That's absolutely. the
1: scale. That's what the scale should be. Rad, bad, yeah. sad.
2: <laughs> sad. Yeah. yeah. Not 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 Richter. Scale, not Richter. I've, like, got scale. Yeah.
1: I've got a new scale. I've got a new scale. Just three. Just three modes. Yeah. Yeah. Rad. Yeah. rad. Last night there was a rad earthquake. Oh, there was a bad earthquake. Mm. Sad, sad or oh, really, yeah. really sad.
0: So, how did you get into earthquakes, Miko Tell us about your your history of of loving yeah. geology.
2: That's actually okay. So this is like story time. But um, yeah. my dad is a civil engineer, and oh, cool. um, back. In, I think, 2002, he was kind of posted in Western India, which ex- right after it experienced the 2001 Bhuj earthquake. It was an earthquake that came out of nowhere, so no one was prepared for it, and it had a lot mm. of devastation. And my dad's company was tasked with uh, reconstructing all the water pipelines in those cities to restart the water treatment wow. plants and everything. So I used to go and visit him when he was posted there for vacation. Mm. That city still has buildings that why wow. be tilted. Wow. Like, if this stand stand at the at the ground you can see like a slight tilt to it and yeah like I saw the devastating effects like the aftermath of those earthquakes, and since then that city has had the most intensive amount of like earthquake proof wow. engineering happen. There was a hospital that totally got devastated during the earthquake. Like there was lots of casualties, but now that hospital is rebuilt to withstand a magnitude eight earthquake. So I think that was my first introduction to earthquakes. And then like I am from India, so I lived next to Himalayas hmm. pretty much all the time. Like you can't nice. ignore the Himalayas.
1: <laughs> no, they seem um, unignorable.
2: Yeah. They- <laughs> Kind of, kind of big. Those areas also have a lot of earthquakes. And my whole idea was that India is a very populated country. The area that surrounds Himalayas is very densely populated Mm. so like even when the 2015 nepal earthquake happened there was like a huge amount of devastation so like Mm. i wanted to know what was causing it why it was happening or like how we could come up with policies or like come up with strategies to like combat it or like to to Mm. deal with it so that we don't have to lose that many lives or anything so yeah that's that's how i started probing into earthquakes
1: wow
0: that's amazing it is
1: fascinating
0: yeah you're surrounded by it yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and,
1: like you've you had first-hand family Mm -hmm. knowledge and having to deal with it. yeah that's incredible and so is it living up to your expectations
2: (laughs) it is actually like during my master's project i actually went back to the area that my dad was posted in but i went back like after 15 years he was like it was, it, there was a time gap and it felt good to like go back to that area and see mm-hmm. the progress that was made and like restudy the things that my dad just dis- sure. like, his company was not directly related to like earthquake research but they had to like deal with fault lines during reconstruction so it felt good and again like because this whole field is new and even the thing that i'm studying right now was like discovered 20 years mm-hmm. ago sure. literally it's like anything is a new discovery it's like every right. little little piece of information means a lot and i think that's fascinating it's like every day you get a new puzzle
0: piece to this mm. whole earthquake thing so i know we can't predict earthquakes you made that very clear and anyone claims is <laughs> no, a, a fraud shyster a fraud <laughs> yeah definitely but are there sometimes signs because you mentioned like earthquakes when no one saw it coming so are there t- like are there s- occasionally, sometimes, signs? And what would those signs be that an earthquake is is a-coming?
2: For earthquakes itself, like, even with the current system of, like, early warning systems that we have, like, California just deployed one recently. Mm. It's like you will get maybe, like, one minute to 45 seconds of... Heads
1: up.
0: Wow. Yeah.
2: before it hits you and you have to be in what we call the goldilocks zone because if you are Mm. very close to the epicenter then the system can't function because it's too soon if you're too far away then you don't need the alert so you Mm. need to be in the proper goldilocks zone and the idea of the earthquake early warning system is to encourage you to take cover so go under the desk go under a hard surface protect your head and hold on like that's that's the protocol so 45 seconds is all max that you can get Mm. to take like immediate action for tsunamis however there is a way to tell is that if the ocean starts retreating like Mm. you can see the water moving away they ask you to move to higher ground because then you can like cancel out the high waves coming in but yeah like there are all these studies where there are like people are looking at how the uh, there are vibrations associated with earthquakes that are picked up by animals and they're more sensitive <laughs> to it and they right. they start you know running away like they can tell and they right. have this intuition to like run away from that area and again like it's all new like we have to like understand animal behavior or like what that vibration actually means to them and why can't we detect it or how can we right. detect it prediction is a very it's a very difficult
1: um mm. thing have you tried deploying dog <laughs> as like all over the place <laughs> just carpet the whole area of dogs
2: yeah like just have the like all the dog stationed on the place yeah dog stations <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. like we don't need sense, but yeah, I mean, the whole reason prediction is like people want to predict earthquakes, like that's where we are going for. And like, the one way rather to not predict but forecast is to figure out how many times an earthquake has happened in the same area. So, like, for Japan, it's like, okay, they get one earthquake every like four or five years san andrea's goes off whatever year so you can track that and you can increase your emergency services be like okay we are prepared for it but again like it's it's a natural process so no matter how many times you try to tame it it's going to do its own thing it's wild so you can't stop you, nature <laughs> yeah like you can be on alert you can be on like a higher level of alert if you're like closing in on that eight on that date but again like it can happen today, it can
0: happen tomorrow, it can happen mm. in like 50 right. years. Now, you mentioned in your bio that you want to take your research and have it affect policy making. How do you sort of envision your results potentially affecting policymaking? Mm-hmm.
2: So I think the direction that I imagine is that to be prepared for an earthquake, you need knowledge at the community level but mm. you also need knowledge at the government level you need to you need the government to in, invest in infrastructure that can let's say open all the uh, hospital emergency doors when the earthquake goes off so that there's no obstruction to ambulance you need all the transit systems to automatically stop and get people to safety you need hospitals that can withstand magnitude 8 earthquake 9 right. earthquake like you need you need a lot of infrastructure you need to build resilience in urban design that's where the intersection happens and also the other thing is that whenever a natural disaster happens there is a panic moment obviously because everything is shaking and mm-hmm. you want to get to safety but it's also about how to deal with the aftermath of it like mm. you, you know you want to be prepared given historically we are like as a civilization we're like really bad at preparing for disasters
1: <laughs> sometimes we cause them. <laughs>
2: yeah like exactly like so even like with the pandemic it's like we mm. after the pandemic happened we realized what where we were on the tipping point yeah. which was like we were right at the tipping point mm. so my ideal idea would be to like get as much preparation done just so that you can at least stop the countless loss of lives because like you can get people to safety and you need to mobilize that. Like Japan right now for Japan, if they have a magnitude 4 earthquake, they're not going to react to it as much as they react to magnitude 9. But then in Japan, even like a nursery school kid knows what to do wow. during an earthquake. So like it needs to be in our mm. collective consciousness. And especially for infrastructure, like places like Montreal, which has like so many old buildings and masonry. Mm. like I was hit by like falling snow and bricks. Yeah. during a non like during a regular winter day so like Imagine having an earthquake Mm. during the winter. Oh, yeah. It will be totally chaos. So, like, I think it needs to be a combined effort between the government and, like, at the community level to get it prepared.
1: Yeah, building codes and everything.
0: Mm. Yeah. So what's next for you, Meghomeda, when you finish your PhD? What are you hoping? I know it's still early days, but where do you see your future?
2: (laughs) I, so when I first started my PhD, I naively wanted to be a professor, (laughs) Uh, have my lab, mentor students and all All that. that. (laughs) Yeah, and very quickly, I realized that I can barely keep a schedule for myself, let alone (laughs) mentoring other students, like that's too much. Uh, i think the states are half so right now i'm trying to like uh, look at options of transitioning into like a more um, science policy based mm-hmm. career and my interest is not just hazard communications and building resilient cities but i also want to look at how to make the research ecosystem more supportive mm. there needs to be some change like as as part of being in the academia and also from a science field which is very like it's not that diverse as the other STEM fields I feel like there needs to be some changes at the academic like within the academic ecosystem that needs to be instituted like it needs to be legislated so I'm trying to go in that direction Mm -hmm. it's a big TBD at this point but yeah that's what I want to do so
1: if you had like a magic wand that could pass (laughs) legislation what would be something that, like, is a, would be a priority for you? Like, what's something you're like, oh, this really needs to change.
2: So if I were to magically manifest uh, yeah. legislation, one one thing that I would definitely would like from my earthquake expertise is more citizen-driven science mm. in which, like, you are talking to these communities, like, you have so many First Nation communities, you have all these original custodians of land with so much information, we need to bring them part of this discussion as to how to combat or how to be prepared for earthquakes so that's one legislation that I would definitely like to see Mm -hmm. in action and regarding the research ecosystem as well I want to see more accountability Mm. like I I want to see like no I mean corporate industries they have their problems academia has its problems but i feel like there's no hr in academia and yeah. i want to see sure. an hr in
0: academia <laughs> that would be nice now Mikomida, yeah. we're, we're wrapping up this has been wonderful but i think we'd be remiss if we let you go without asking since we are fellow montrealers for a restaurant recommendation what is your what is your restaurant recommendation for us what
2: what cuisine are we talking about? Maybe just
1: give us three, Ooh, three okay. dining experiences that people should go.
2: Okay, so one of them is quite recent and it presently surprised me. Uh, so there's this restaurant called Le Super Qualité. Uh, it's in Bélanger, it's run by, I think, a trio of French Quebecois people. Uh-huh. Like They went to India, they did like a deep dive in it and their Indian food is amazing.
0: Wow. Ooh, love Indian food.
2: Cannot recommend it enough. And every, every month I think they do like, they showcase cuisines from from a different state in oh, india which is cool. very cool for me because like i miss my mm. state food so that i would definitely recommend the other recommendation i would have is if you're in for pho, uh, there's this place called pho liam Oh, uh, yeah. It's in Kodanesh. I've heard it's of it. Amazing. Cannot recommend it enough. And uh, recently I got my. So I found the restaurant, then I shared it with my lab mate, and now she orders from them every every <laughs> week
1: almost. Nice.
2: It's called Dava. It's on Sherbrooke. It's like Korean fried chicken. Yes, it
1: is. Oh, I you love, love that place. place. Yes.
2: It's so good. We're
1: <laughs> so, spoiled for Korean fried chicken here in NDG. It's pretty great.
2: And the other restaurant that I. Kind of want to shout out to because I love the owners. They're so cute. It's called East Africa. It's also an NDG. It's an Ethiopian restaurant. How
1: have you not gone there?
2: They open, like, I think you need to reserve or let them know that you're coming because they open based on like the uh, amount of tickets they get. And that food is, oh my God. Like I inhaled that food. It was so fast. Like I, it was gone from my place.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good review.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds
2: <laughs> yeah. amazing. It's right on Sherbrooke, but like Perfect. on the one the of five, one yeah. of five line.
1: <laughs> well, this is good stuff. Why don't we ask this some more, guys?
0: <laughs> <laughs> she mentioned in her bio. restaurant know. I'm just gonna ask this
1: from now on from everybody.
2: It's like a side project that I'm kind of working Ooh. on because like I love food and I'm trying to create this interactive map which is called <sighs> Meghost Records yes! of all the places that are so. I don't know when it's going to launch, but I'm going to make it happen because well, I love this city and it's food. Yeah. Uh,
1: you have your first subscribers right here.
0: <laughs>
1: we are, <laughs> we are are
0: We're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, Mikomita, this has been amazing. We've learned about so food, much. more about earthquakes, <laughs> and you are a fantastic guest. Best of luck in your yes. uh, research policy future.
2: Thank you so much. And I wish you all the very best. I, I care for all the new up and coming episodes.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, that was amazing. So good. That was so good. I, lo- I love having guests, one, who are clearly passionate about oh, their field, yes. and two, are happy to talk about food recommendations, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always hungry. I,
0: we just, we just started eight. this I episode yeah, with Yeah, but I'm ready for Dawa tummies. again. Yeah, those recommendations are up right up our alley. Yeah, line. for sure. But earthquakes. Yeah. How cool.
1: Very cool. Some would say rad. <laughs>
0: They they fall under for me like I feel like the '80s were really obsessed with all, all sorts of these natural disasters sure. like earthquakes, volcanoes, volcanoes quicksand. Piranhas. I feel like I was a very afraid of was, all these things. I was worried about piranhas for sure. I'm still
1: worried about piranhas. <laughs> it's
0: not a very realistic fear.
1: Can, fear doesn't need to be rational. Mm, that's my motto. And that's a good point. Yeah. But yeah, this is a good one. That was that was a lot of fun.
0: Wow. Yeah. I wish I knew more about geology. That's that's something that's... It should be... I don't know why it's not considered with the other sciences. Like, we should all take a geology class in high school and in Sage. I do
1: remember learning about Subduction and very slipstrike. little,
0: but like I i learned and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I taught a class on the evolving earth at McGill. Mm. Um, and I taught the biology portion, but there's someone who taught the geology portion and the whole time I'm like, wait, so that's why this happens, you know, how rivers right. are formed, and that influences that obviously biology. Yeah. Sure. But it's like geology influences everything else too. And the fact that we don't learn it alongside it seems so silly. It's
1: amazing. I mean, even you know, the astronomy part mm. of affecting like our Earth, like the right. moon and the sun, yes, and seasons, and mm. the, all of these things are factors and what goes on on our planet. There's so many, yeah, interconnected sciences and disciplines, like you know, uh, having to do the chemistry part so you understand the geology exactly. It's all, it's all one, it's all connected. It's all connected. We're all one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the message today. <laughs> All right. Well, Vinny, do you want to send everyone out on our socials? Yeah.
1: If you're interested in following us on social media, you can check us out at LRGPod. That's LRGPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're interested in being a guest or maybe you know someone who would be a great guest for us, you can have them email us at learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's learnrealgoodpodcast at (laughs) gmail.com.
0: All right. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Megomita. Thank you for listening.
1: Yeah, thank you, listeners. We love you. And if you do feel like helping us out, please leave us a little review. uh, Put some stars in there. (laughs) I'll leave in a text review saying that, hey, you guys sound great. That's enough for us.
0: (laughs) All right. Good night, folks. Good night.
1: Bye-bye.